How did a private cemetery come to hold 1,500 Confederate remains after the Battle of Franklin? We'll explore that story with Robert Hicks, author of The Widow of the South, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, this is Jeff and Rochelle from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. What is the best rule of thumb when tipping on a cruise? While it is completely up to you, most experts suggest 10 to $12 per day per person. This is usually settled on the last night of your cruise and may be distributed among your stateroom attendant, your waiter, the maitre d' and their assistants. If you want to save yourself the hassle of budgeting for this additional expense, consider prepaying your gratuity when you book your cruise or sometime before you set sail. If you want to add the gratuity later, that is your option. There are a few cruise lines that suggest a tipping optional policy. It is felt that service personnel are paid considerably better than on other cruise lines and the need to tip is not required. These will usually be found on higher-end luxury-style cruise lines. Some cruise lines will impose a service charge of $10 per person per day. This can be adjusted up or down at the end of the cruise as you see fit. Keep in mind, though, that gratuity are a large part of the income for the service industry. If there is anybody on the ship that you feel has done an exceptional job to make your cruise vacation more enjoyable, let that person know how you feel, both by extending a worthy gratuity and thanking that person personally. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune in to Travel Hub Radio, live Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and TravelHubRadio.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Talking today with Robert Hicks, author of The Widow of the South, an imaginative fictional recreation of the Battle of Franklin, Tennessee in 1864 and its aftermath. Uh, Robert, we talked in our first segment a bit about your the origins of your interest in this uh, situation. What Could you give a, a brief sketch of what happened at Franklin uh, and both during the battle and after that forms the, the framework of, of your story? Sure. The uh, the Battle of Franklin takes place on November 30th, 1864. It's uh, it's late in the war. The big event of that year, as you know, is the re-election of Lincoln, and that, of course, is is definitely uh, enhanced by the the campaign of Atlanta, the success that the Union had there. Um, after Atlanta, the the Union Army, we always know because we saw the movie. Um, makes its way under Sherman to the sea, but in reality, the army split, as you know. And while while Sherman does have an army that makes the famous march to the sea, um, the other half of the army under Schofield is hightailing it back to Nashville. Um, I assume that the hope is is that the Confederates will split too. But as you know, under John Bell Hood, he is chasing Schofield. It isn't like anyone doesn't know what's going to happen from Housewives in Ohio to Pope Pius the Ninth. Because uh, 
basically Hood's making, you know, almost having press conferences along the way. He's going to take the army. He's going to take the the war into to Nashville. He's going to go into Kentucky. Um, Lincoln, you know, said earlier, if I lose Kentucky, I lose the war. And uh, and eventually he's going to join back up with Lee. There, there's some predictions in Europe that he'll be in New York City by uh, by spring. Reality, we know that this was all the grand illusion. But that's that's really what the, the Confederacy needed at that point, the sense that it wasn't going to stop. And uh, and what happened at Franklin, as 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 Wally Sword has called it, the last hurrah of the Confederacy, was that that real last chance to keep that illusion alive. I mean, there'll be battles, obviously, Nashville, um, North Carolina, Virginia, last one in Texas. There'll be many battles afterwards in those next four months. But in reality, this was the, the to me, I think the moment where it became evident to everyone that there wasn't going to be like a, a second or third or fourth chance. Um, basically, uh, Hood finally cut Schofield off just south of Franklin and Spring Hill, goes to bed knowing he's going to have his battle. Next day, wakes up to one of the more, you know, magical moments in, in a war full of them when basically Schofield's army had more or less just walked through Hood's lines, had gotten into Franklin. The already fortified town of Franklin's now been refortified. And, uh, and then the decision of what to do. Now, great controversy exactly what all happens that, that day, but but you know, by tradition, there are two meetings with generals, and uh, Hood is definitely discouraged from hitting Franklin, at least on the south side. He he overrides it. Uh, battle starts about four o'clock in the afternoon, unseasonably warm. Um, longest charge I think in open field in the war. Ed Bars is 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 giving me wonderful stories of his vision of what happened. Um, you know, one of the last medieval battles fought with full orchestras playing. And uh, and five hours later, um, you know, the counts range from 9,200, that's the U.S. official account, to Thomas Cartwright at the Carter House feels like it was more like 11 or 12,000 casualties. Um, you know, there's 2,500 living people in Franklin, and and 9,200 dead or dying people, um, and it's it's total chaos. So the, the Confederate Army of Tennessee smashes itself against the, the Union breastworks seventeen times, seventeen charges in those five hours. Um, you know, just basically annihilating themselves. And then you've got the the aftermath of the, the, this horrible number of casualties that dwarfs the number of people living there. Sometimes we think about that at Gettysburg, where you have the the, the casualties in the small Absolutely. town. Absolutely, but it's worse at Franklin. Uh, I mean, the proportion. And again, there, are, as, as, as your listeners are totally well aware, there there are far bloodier battles, you know, and all of them. But but just to be in five hours, I mean, you know, really five hours of serious fighting. Um, to have this kind of casualty numbers, it's 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 it's, it's overwhelming. So, what happens to those uh, those casualties? Where do they go? Well, you know, um, the Union's gone for about two weeks, and and the Union who died, I'm going to start there. Uh, eventually, will be taken, and uh, and will be um, buried either in the, the the National Cemetery in Nashville, which was started after the Battle of Franklin, or will be buried in Murfreesboro, Stones River. Now, 
as far as the southern wounded and die dead, um, it's a different story. Um, those, of course, that that survive are are taken away when the Union reoccupies the town, and those who don't survive are pretty much buried uh, in the in the what originally was that Union, Union fortification trenches. Uh, they're buried there. They're 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 buried in shallow graves. Eventually, the war ends, as we know, and families begin to come in and take the remaining dead. And when it's all said, two years later, there's there's approximately uh, um, almost 1,500, just a hair under 1,500 boys, 1,490-something boys, that are still buried out on the battlefield. And this becomes this kind of gargantuan effort by Carrie McGavick and her husband and the committee they put together to basically dig up these boys who have been buried pretty much in open graves for for two years and to bring them back to her farm and as an extension of her own family cemetery where three of her five children lay buried to, to bury these boys out there. Now, this involvement by uh, Carrie McGavrock in the the reburial is not her first involvement with the battle. Uh, she, no. It, it takes... Some of it takes place on her farm. Uh, Forrest had shown up at the house by all documentation early in the morning, and soon thereafter they find out that the house will be commandeered as a field hospital. And so while most of Franklin, those 2,500 people in Franklin, were hiding in their cellars, in reality, this wasn't the, the McGavick's option. Their house was, was turned into a hospital. The battle starts about 4 o'clock, and um, the... The first of the wounded on the eastern flank are, are actually being uh, hit literally on their front lawn as the army is going around the house and will then go charge across the back lawn. And so the first of the wounded are being brought in and put in the beds and put on the couches. And then they're put on the floor. And when the house could hold no more, they were taken to the outbuildings. When they were filled, they were taken back to the back porch. When that was filled... They were they were taken out just to the lawn and under trees, and what what the McGavicks could see by the early light of dawn was uh, if in any direction they would have looked would have been dead and dying boys. Four Confederate generals lay dead on the back porch. Um, it was an amazingly powerful um, powerful time. One of her seventeen. Obituaries when she died said those of the, those of us who recall the hours as they became days, as she ceased to care for herself as she cared for the dying, those of us recall the two feet of blood on her skirt and the skirt skirt and the two and the blood up to her elbow, and as she cared for the dying, how she spent the remainder of her life caring over the dead. We in all generations will rise up and call her blessed. And uh, that was going to be her story. I mean, it, 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 without the cemetery, it's just an intensity. Maybe the same story told all over the South in those four years and in Pennsylvania. But, but, or maybe the story that's throughout all of ages, men go to war, women are left to put the pieces back together. But, but the uniqueness of her story is the fact that she went out two years later with this group of people and dug up these people and brought them back and mourned over them for the rest of her life. And that that's the story that you tell in this novel. Let, let me ask some questions about the, the book as a novel. This is your first uh, published novel? First published novel. I've written essays, 
uh, nonfiction essays before this first published novel. So what uh, what kind of research did you do before writing it? Well, for about 20 years, I've been the, pretty much the financial driving force behind Historic Carn Plantation. I was a person who kind of went out and raised the money. We've never received any public funding. Whether the city, the county, the state, the federal government, we've never received a penny. And so uh, about 20 years ago, I said, why don't we bring in the same kind of scholars that are that are doing research on Monticello and Mount Vernon and places like that and really try to understand what the house looks like. And uh, I'll go out and raise the money. And my board, partly out of graciousness and humoring me, partly out of the second stage of Alzheimer's, all agreed to this. And uh, there I was stuck. I had to do it. And so while I was working in the music business, I was soliciting funds and trying to get people involved and excited about Carton. I had many a person in my own town say, we're not going to put good money after bad. That place won't be around in five years. And so uh, I, I, I learned a lot about the story. I, I spent time trying to understand. I, I spent try, time trying to read the real historians. I'm not a historian. Um, uh, to, to understand and to spend time with people like Wiley, Wiley Sword or, or, you know, as I said, bars last time I was here in town was out of my cabin. You know, to, to ask them to talk to historians. What Thomas Cartwright, right in my community, one of the strongest historians on the Battle of Franklin. Eric Jacobson, a phenomenal historian on the Battle of Franklin. And so I, I spent time trying to literally understand the battle. And when I wrote the book, the reason it's fiction is because I don't know what her motivations are. Carrie McGavick never spoke about herself. I think if she was here with us today, she would say it was too frivolous. But I, I, as far as when it came to the battle, I literally sat on the phone one day for hours with Thomas Cartwright, going sentence by sentence by sentence by sentence over this, and uh, trying to uh, trying to, to to understand if I was right or wrong on it, and uh, and and really open to correction. So so some of the book is fiction, some of the book is nonfiction. Right. And certainly, I thought your description of the Battle of Franklin was was compelling. It, it presents it from the viewpoints of certain individuals, and without uh, being able to go back and talk to individuals from the battle, we're always going to be limited in what we can know. But uh, it, it's certainly a convincing word picture that you create of of what went on, uh, how it might have looked from either the. Uh, the advancing Confederate side, or the the Union soldiers behind the uh, the fortifications that they had built there. You created a number of characters. Are the characters other than uh, Mrs. McGavrick? Are they composites of people you read about, or creations? Harry, uh, John, uh, their family, uh, uh, Mariah Reddick, uh, an enslaved person. They were all real people. Um, the Baylor, the kind of the uh, antagonist, is 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 really based on three. As I say, he's based on three um, characters. One is a is a, a guy named William Glass, a banker here. Another person is is Fountain Branch Carter, uh, somewhat, and then the third is uh, is is Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it is a fictional <laughs> count. And I mean, and I've never tried to say otherwise. You know, it's why it says novel on the on the cover. And I, I, 
Um, uh, as far as as far as Cashwell, this boy that comes, he is he is based on a real person that was here. Um, you know, the family has no problem. The kind of senior member of the of the descendants, that is, has said, "I've read the book several times, and and uh, there seems nothing in the book that's out of character with what we understand about Gary McGavick." Um, now, I'm not saying that that little old ladies don't have a problem. I, uh, you know, when I came to Franklin, we called her Caroline. And one of the driving forces in me doing this was I was taking the last person who knew Carrie McGavick through the cemetery one day before she died, a niece. And I came upon her grave, and I saw something very strange. It said, Carrie W. McGavick. Now, that may not sound strange to you, but in those days, it was universal that her name was Caroline. And I asked her niece, why did it say Carrie? Why was there a nickname? She said, well, you know, she hated the name Caroline. In fact, she said, as I've hated it in life, don't label me in death. I said, why are we calling her, Car- Car- why are we calling her Caroline? And, and her niece said, well, you know, the executive director of the House Museum hates the name Carrie. And so I sat there and I thought, this woman who we were told generations would rise up and call her blessed, we didn't even rise up and call her Carrie. And so I wanted to know her story. And so I was walking down the street the other day, now years later, and I'm almost accosted by a, a woman of a certain age. She was born in 1926, so you can do the numbers. Carrie died in 1905. And this woman said to me, she said, Robert Hicks, you need to be ashamed of yourself. And I said, yes. And she said, yes. She said, she said I knew Carrie McGavick. And she said she would have never kissed a lower-class man. And I, I started to say something, and then I walked away, and I thought, you know what? I won. When I met this woman 30 years ago, and she was on the board of the House Museum, she always called her Caroline. Uh. And so, you know what? You know, maybe she's right. Maybe Car- Carrie would have only kissed uh, upper class men. But the reality is, is that is that is that now she at least knows what her name is, and that that seemed like an important fact for me. Yeah, well, it is an important fact. Uh, my older daughter is named Caroline and hates to be called Carrie. And it's important to her uh, to get the name right, whichever direction you want to go with it. Right. It matters what you call people. Well, uh, so there are, she's obviously a real character. As you point out, her, uh, her husband, uh, Mariah, originally her slave, then her, her companion uh, friend through, through much of the book is a real person right uh, but at the same time there are others who, who are absolutely uh, added to well we're going to take another short break and we'll come back and talk more about what uh, the people who populate the pages of the widow of the south the novel by robert hicks about the battle of franklin and its aftermath in just a moment when we come back on civil war talk radio <laughs> 